This is the People Make Things podcast, a behind-the-scenes look at the modern entertainment industry. I'm your host, Christopher Natsume. I'm a game developer, I'm a podcaster, I'm a live streamer, and I'm also an entrepreneur. The internet knows me a little bit better as Night Squirrels. Very excited today to be talking to Brie Code. She's coming to us from Berlin. Uh, for those of you who don't know her, and I'm, I'm sure most of you actually do, she's been working as a programmer since 2001. She's been in games since 2003. She was at Relic and Pandemic, where she worked on games like Company of Heroes and Warhammer 40K. She also worked at Ubisoft in Montreal, where she worked not only on Assassin's Creed, but Assassin's Creed Brotherhood, Assassin's Creed 3, and Child of Light. And in all of those games, she specialized in building and managing the building of AI systems as a programmer. She's now the founder of True Love Media. Media. She's got all kinds of great stuff to talk to us about. Welcome to the show, Brie. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I want to jump right into the questions, and I want to start with the, the traditional, how did you get into the industry? What What is your why I make games story? How did this start for you? Um, I did a computer science degree because I was paying my own way through university, and I knew that I could keep my scholarship if I did computer science because it was, um, there's always a right answer and you can make sure you have the right answer. You just don't leave the lab until your program works. <laughs> um, that was short-term thinking because once I got my degree, I realized I didn't want to be a programmer. Oh, that's a bad thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> and then so I like had this job programming at the university for a couple of years while I thought about it. I saved up or actually rather I got credit cards and decided to go traveling, thinking that I would find some answers. I maxed out my credit cards, came back, and took the first job I could find. I think I had $8 left. And um, that just happened to be by luck, like absolute luck at Relic. And I didn't realize games could be a job. At the time I was graduating, I like the jobs available in Vancouver were either for like banks or big corporations or um, internet porn and gambling. So then when I found the games industry, I realized I'd found the thing that I had been looking for. It's like creative and cultural, but uses my degree. And so then I never looked back. So you say that, you know, just by chance, you, you wandered into a, a game job. Were you a big gamer before then? Did you, as you were, you know, when you were younger, did you have a, a history of playing video games? Yeah, I did. I, I was a, like, I was a super nerd when I was young. I was probably like bullied and picked on a bit and like the nerd of my school. Um, and my dad was a programmer, so we always had computers before um, other people, and I was sitting at home alone, so it was a natural fit. Um, I played a lot of adventure games in the 80s and 90s. I got really into Warcraft 2 in high school, um, and in university I was playing a lot of StarCraft. So so with that background, you, when you graduated with a CS degree, you just weren't interested originally in going into games, that, that even, uh, even though you were a big it wasn't gamer? Something I, it wasn't something I realized was something you could aim for. Like, um, I come from a blue-collar background, and doing any kind of art or entertainment or anything like that wasn't considered like a reliable career that you could aim for. And I knew a couple guys that dropped out of computer science to go work at EA, but it's still... It hadn't been something I'd considered was like a, a stable, reliable career that you could actually get into. It seemed like something that would be like 
rare and difficult and you couldn't count on it. Yeah, I, I can remember similar experiences when I got into games. I didn't know before I got into games that that was a career either, and it was only when a friend of mine got a job in games. I was like, wait, wait, you could do that? That's a that's a thing you can do and earn money? So I, I can I can remember that kind of experience. Yeah. So you, you got into games at, at Relic, and at some point, and I'm, I'm not sure where, some point along the process, um, you decided to sort of specialize in AI code. Was that a conscious decision on your part, or is that something that just sort of organically grew out of where they put you, or how did that happen? Yeah, it just grew out of where they put me. Um, again, like I had no concept of like trying to build a career in the direction you want. I always just felt like I was lucky to have work, and that like my work ethic was like that you do what is needed. And um, so when I started at Relic, um, I, I wrote uh, gameplay and then I wrote a UI library and a UI tool and then started to write more gameplay stuff and more AI stuff. And then um, it just, I guess it was a fit for what kind of stuff I was good at and what they needed. And I just, I found it very interesting and it was my favorite part to work on. So then I started to work on it more. What were the size of the teams you were working with at Relic? Um, I think I was employee number like 45 or 49 at Relic and we had two teams at the time. So starting like starting Company of Heroes, I think we were very small, like maybe 10 people or something. It's hard to remember. But then we grew to over 100 people near the end of it all on the same all on the same project all team. on company of heroes yes that's a lot of people not a lot of people anymore yeah it's true i i forget because yeah. i've been in casual games so long for me yes. 140 yeah. people is like a, a million but even even you know when i was in triple a because i did triple a you know sort of back yes. in those days yeah. 140 people was a big team back then yeah we were a huge team back then i remember like some people at like my friends at another company being like, oh, you couldn't possibly be profitable with that many people. But I think it was. I think it worked out fine. So for I know a lot of people who are going to listen to this are people who are looking at going into coding or people who are sort of at the beginning of their journey coding. Tell me about what it was like starting a job uh, as a coder. What what were sort of the first, oh, my goodness, I hadn't thought about this moments or, or, or things that you learned in your, your sort of early years as a coder? Yeah, so... When I went to university, games wasn't a thing, so there were no games courses. Um, and I hadn't even taken a software engineering course besides the, I think I took a third year software engineering course, but the fourth year one was canceled the year I was there or was full or something. So basically when I started and we start working on quite a big team and, and you know, Game engines didn't really exist back then as middleware, so we spent the first three years writing the engine, and then we spent six months writing the game. <laughs> and so I learned more in those three years than I learned during my degree about um, like using design patterns, architecting systems that were maintainable and um, easy for other programmers to understand when they look at it. Um, and yeah, just software design in general, I learned so much more in those first few years than I did in my degree. And I felt like, especially because the way we were working was very iterative. So everything we designed had to be very well designed so that we could, you know, maintain it and change it and move things around and try new things all the time. What were the, what was the, 
sort of makeup of the programming team? So when when you started, you said it was it wasn't so, but it worked itself up to 140 people. What what percentage of those people were actually coders, and how how are how are they sort of distributed? How did you guys divide the work amongst yourselves? At first, I think we didn't, and we never had specific titles when I worked at Relic. Like it was just my title was programmer. And everyone kind of, at first we just kind of had like a group of programmers and we did what needed to be done based on to support the design team Mm -hmm. as they were figuring out what this game was going to be. And then as the team started to grow, we ended up like, you know, changing the seating plans so that we were sitting with the clients we'd be working with. So I sat with game designers um, and then some of the programmers who started to just work more on on graphics sat with the artists. And, and then there was one programmer that came that was just doing pathfinding. So we started to specialize as the team grew. Um, but we still had a very, like, um, collaborative environment where if someone needed, like, if there was some some part of the game was growing more complex than we anticipated, we would go help out. So... Like, yeah, as the team grew, we specialized, but we still stayed quite flexible. So I want to jump ahead in your career. So that that was sort of the early days and you figuring out how to be a games coder. So by the time you show up at Ubisoft in Montreal, you've got years of experience yeah. under your belt, you're far more experienced. And obviously you're working on what must have been much larger teams. Uh, yes. Let's talk about the first Assassin's Creed. Because that was your first job at oh, so Ubisoft, Oh, so Assassin's right? Creed 2. Assassin's oh, okay. Creed 2. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that that was your first gig at, at Ubisoft Montreal, right? Yes. So yeah. compare that. I'm, I'm, I want I want to kind of give people a view of what game building in 2003 versus I think now we're up to like 2007, something like that. When was that? 2008. Been? 2008. So yeah. what 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 changed? What's different in those two jobs? What was the big adjustment? Uh, this, I mean, the size of the team and the the um the tools created for programmers. So, I mean, one thing about Ubisoft Montreal is the way that they structure their AAA productions is they have a core team, which is responsible for the creative direction, basically. And then they have kind of these armies of people that are there to create content. And so, you know, um, gameplay programmers on a team like that you know, I think at the beginning of Assassin's Creed Tomb, there were maybe 30 programmers already. And by Assassin's Creed 3, we were 60 programmers just on the AI team, if I remember correctly. You're kidding. Oh, that includes, that includes some testers and designers that were also on the AI team and some animators. So, but the AI team, just AI was 60 people. For, for people who don't know how big AAA teams are, how, how big are we talking the whole team? The whole, I mean, I, I doubt you know an exact number, but how? I don't know an exact number, but I, I know it's in the high hundreds. How does how do you like even how do you even maybe. understand how a project like that is being put together? If you're if you're put in a position and and I want to I want to dig deep into this. I want to talk about yeah. how a six and I had no idea sixty people. <laughs> I don't. How does a sixty person <laughs> team of programmers know what it is they're building? How does that process even start? And how does it get maintained? How do you how how does that even work? So at that point, the programmers have very clear tools that they use provided by the engine programming team and 
they have very specific responsibilities and we have a heavy process to make sure that you're not breaking other people's work. Because if you break something, you have 600 people who can't work. So, um, it, your, your own work becomes very slow because there's so many steps before you can do anything. Who defines all of this? How do, I mean, are there like a million meetings or is, is there yes. a, a oh, yes. huge ginormous documents? How, how, yes, does, how does this? Are. <laughs> so, I mean, if you have a small team, you can work iteratively and you can work fast and you can experiment and you can try things. And like, I remember at the beginning at Relic, we didn't even have code reviews before we checked in, we just checked in. And you barely ever broke things or when you did, you're like, you're only holding up a few people and then like you can get it fixed pretty fast. Yeah. I still don't um, like that. It's wonderful. Uh, <laughs> it's so sweet over here at Indie Gaming. <laughs> yeah. I work like that now again <laughs> and I, I'm terrible actually. It's like, yeah. Check in descriptions. I don't even usually put anything. Um, so, uh, well, that's shameful. Um, so, um, so by the yeah on a team that size then we have this is actually quite hilarious i'm not sure if ubisoft still works this way but when i was working on assassins we designed the game on paper we have meetings with all the stakeholders for a feature every afternoon for three hours for months and we go wait, over that wait, wait, feature. Wait, wait, when you say all the stakeholders, how many people are you talking there? Uh, like maybe 10 to 15 people. All right. Like the, So like for an AI feature, it would be me. Let, let, as, actually, let's get really specific. Yeah. I, I want you to okay. kind of go back in your memory and pick a specific feature that somebody might remember from. Uh, every, everyone who's listening okay. to this probably has played Assassin's Creed. Or let's go for Assassin's Creed yeah. 2. So on Assassin's Creed 2, on Assassin's Creed 2, we had something called group manipulations, which is where you have like a group of NPCs and you can like blend in with them and then walk with them mm. or like use them for various gameplay things. So say for this group blending, like the design team has the idea that this would be a great feature for the game and they write a document in Excel and the document is super structured. Every line is a testable line. So the design document becomes the test document. And they write a first draft of this document. They send it around to everyone who would be involved on making that feature. And they go over the document and like do a thought experiment of like, how would this interact with other systems in the game? Does this make sense? Can we code this? Does it like, does it leverage what's already in the engine as much as possible? Or can we pr suggest some design changes that could show off what's available more? Wait, wait, and wait then, a second. I want to I step back before we... I like where we're going, but I want to step back even yeah. a step further. So okay. you say they write this document. Yeah, the designers. How do... I mean, I, as a designer, my training is as a designer. How yeah. does... If you have 60 AI programmers, I can only imagine how many designers are on this team. How... How do they write that document? How did, I mean, someone somewhere oh. has this idea. What is the, pro so someone had the idea for this feature somewhere in the team. Yes. What is the process? I have no idea because on a team that size, you don't know what other parts of the team do or how they do it. You only see the interface. So I received this document. I don't know how it got written. 
So you have no idea like the the process that went to getting this Excel document put together. But by the time you get no. it, you have a, an Excel document full of verifiable, testable lines of yes. it does this when this happens, it does this when this happens, if this thing happens, yeah. this thing happens. And before that, you as an AI coder have no interaction with this. That's right. So like at the beginning of the project, the designers sit together and they do whatever it is they do to come up with this initial draft of the design of the game. And then we rearrange the floor plan and the designers come sit with the people who will be implementing it. So in the beginning, I don't know what they're doing. I think they're making like some design documents and, and talking to each other and then eventually creating this more structured document. I don't know though. So and then, just, just for the record, you yeah. get this document and you know, yes. you, you have, you, you play games, you know, things about, you're, you know, you're yes. not just a, a person that goes and implements things. You're a person who has an interest in the game that you're making. What if you don't yeah. like it? What if you look at it and you're like, that's a terrible idea or that? Then you that, can go talk to the design team. Does that happen much or do people, I mean, because it seems like such a sort of massive train of structure coming at you that, that stepping up and putting your hand up at that point would not be a popular move. Um, I think this is the point where that could be done because we haven't signed off on that document yet. So this, like the document gets sent to us first for review. Okay. So this is the point where like we, as, as, as each programmer is a specialist on one part of the engine, this is the chance for that specialist to be like, oh, but did you know, like, if you change the design this way, we could do this really cool thing. So that's that's the chance at this time. And if you don't seize it at this time, then it's too late later. So then the document kind of gets put in a queue for official review. And then we have these official review meetings every afternoon until all the features have been reviewed. And so that goes on for months. And we do and, one and or two time, features. Nobody even pretends to write code about this. Um, not about that stuff. All right. But there's plenty of other code to write. There'll be like engine updates. Um, but, but, but my point is, for this particular feature that's being discussed, nobody says, right. "Well, let's let's quickly prototype something up and see if it's fun or not." And then if it's fun, then we'll go in and re that thing doesn't happen. That's right. And that's maybe and maybe that's changed now. I would hope so because that's so this was an ex, like because of the size of the team and the complexity of what they're doing, there was no iteration. Mm. And that's what I found coming from Relic and coming from Pandemic and then joining Ubisoft. I was so shocked by how they managed to pull it off without iteration. Like literally, we make these documents, then we do these review meetings Everyone does a thought experiment in the review meeting. We debate about how it might interact with other systems, what bugs might come up, what's possible or not possible. It's really depending on the brain power of a few geniuses on the team um, who are called technical directors. And then um, once a feature is signed off in that meeting, it's not allowed to change. I mean, what if, what, if, what if the feature is put in a game and it gets done and people are like, this sucks and it's no fun? It doesn't happen because of those few bottleneck geniuses. It's a very precarious process. And then so because then the document goes off to all these different parts of the teams that are siloed from each other because on a team that size, no matter how you try to come up with a team structure, there's always going to be some kind of siloing. Yeah, of course. So everyone works on it separately, knowing that the feature doesn't change, 
And then in the last couple months of the project, everything starts getting checked in. And hopefully we had already predicted all the interactions and accounted for them because at this point, if there are bad interactions between systems, we're screwed. And that's how it's made. That sounds hella stressful. Yes. So, I mean, on a, on a non-programming level question, did you enjoy that? It was exhilarating to work as part of a very efficient, very focused machine, basically. Like, it's, it's like something greater than yourself, which is a super satisfying feeling. You come in and you do your small part all day long. There's like, Someone coming to your desk needs this thing. You hook them up with the person. Then the next thing, the next thing, next thing, next thing. And it's like you're just like solving problems all day long, every day, unexpected stuff, like coordinating. And it, there's a like a very strong sense of accomplishment at the end of every day. But there seems such a lack of a sense of agency in in. Yes, these... there's no agency. And and that. That part of being a, a big, huge project that never drove you down, that never made you question what you were um, up to? Oh, no, for sure it did. By the end of every project, I wanted to quit. Every time. <laughs> every time. So why didn't you? I always got sucked back in. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's like all about the money and the fame, isn't it? <laughs> um, Just like the thing is I got a new opportunity every time, like – when I joined Assassin's Creed 2, I, like, I, I was like an intermediate programmer at my job before that. I hadn't really enjoyed my job before that, and I'd come, and then right from the beginning of Assassin's Creed 2, like, the team had such high team spirit. The brainstorms were really interesting. It was using a lot of the knowledge that I'd brought from Relic. Um, and so it felt really good. And then shortly after I got to Assassin's Creed 2, they asked me to become a team lead, which I'd never seen myself going in that direction. I was extremely shy. I was extremely technical. Like, you know, at Relic, I was just kind of like off in the corner, like problems that were like kind of no one else wanted to do or, or were difficult or something. would be like, oh, let's see if we can do it. It's so like I was like a shy technical programmer. And then they were like, do you want to be a team lead? And I was like, that's insane like why would you ask me but I was like of course I'll take it and then that terrified me and that was really terrifying and like I still like for years I got nervous just speaking to my own team in the morning meeting every morning and um and then so on Assassin's Creed Brotherhood they asked me to manage two teams and I was like well of course I'm gonna say yes so and then, I, I want to interrupt for just a second about yeah. that particular answer. So yeah. there's there's always been this debate, uh, I, I guess, in the, the greater world of technology, but certainly in games, about the fact that uh, pay in the world of technology tends to come with those kind of advancements. If you want to get a big oh, I increase. Didn't really get, I didn't really get pay increases. It was just the... the I mean, so, so for you, it was it was actually about wanting to take on the greater responsibility and not just feeling well. If I want the pay increase, I have to take on the greater responsibility. At Ubisoft Montreal, they have very good career advancement paths for different 
skill sets. So as a programmer, there's three ways you can go. You can become a specialist programmer, you can become a technical director, or you can become a manager. So if you're more like into people management, you can start going that path. If you're more into like architecture and managing the tech, you can go that path. Or if you're more into just becoming like highly specialized at the individual programming you're doing, you can do that path as well. And they, I think the management path would actually have the lowest pay of those three paths. That's incredibly surprising because there's not a lot of studios out there that run that way. And there's a lot of people who make a very strong argument for there being those paths because there are a lot of yeah. people who are incredible coders that just they have no interest in managing, but they also have an yes. interest in earning more money and they get pushed yes. into a role that they didn't they didn't want and they're not good at. Yes. And that's 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 a shame. So, so, so yay yeah. on Ubisoft for having yeah, advanced no, management practices. Very, very good. Yes. So, so back, back to your story though. Mm -hmm. You actually took that because yeah. you felt this is something interesting for me. This is this is a direction I want to go. Why? Um, oh, it's a direction I'd never thought of, but I was just, I, I just thought it would be interesting to try, and then it it was very good for me because it you know learning to talk to people and go to these meetings and and all the management training they gave me which was really useful not just in work but also in life and like now I make my living speaking like I you tell me that 15 years ago I would have died <laughs> so <laughs> um so I just like it was it ended up being very cool for me like as a person but it, it did make me get quite bored of my job because the kind of stuff that I am actually passionate about doing is AI systems, which I moved away from to do this management stuff. So I think I stayed in management for a few more years longer than I needed to, looking back. Yeah, see, I, I, had, I had a similar challenge in my own life in my own studio where we grew quite quickly. And as one of the owners of the studio, somebody had to manage all of those people. And I found myself... Yeah spending less and less time doing what I loved, which was designing video games, and more and more time doing payroll and, you know, sorting out yes. meeting schedules and that sort of thing. And at yes. some point, I threw up my hands and I said, this, is, this isn't what I got in the business for. So this, yes. this hit you as well? Yeah, and I'm very thankful to one of my bosses for that. So, I mean, as I was saying, I just, I kept staying in this track because I kept getting new opportunities that were just too intriguing to turn down. So, like, after Brotherhood, I got another promotion. And then after AC3, I was definitely going to go indie at that point. But then I got the opportunity to do Child of Light and be the lead programmer for the whole team. So I would learn about engine programming. I would learn about like the whole making of a game from beginning to end. And as a, as a, you know, come from the way that Ubisoft does AAA, the only thing I knew about was AI and these, interfaces to the AI team but I didn't even really know like I said I didn't even really know how our clients worked like I didn't know how the design documents came to us I just know that they did so then the chance to work on Child of Light then I got to see like the whole production from beginning to end and learn all about how to make a game and also on Child of Light at that point I was still thinking of becoming a producer and that was that was like my career path even going India wasn't going to be the like in a creative role, I was going to run the project. But then um, my boss on Child of Light, amazing boss, J.F. Poirier, 
knew that I wanted to become a producer. And so he showed me what being a producer is. He would always be like, oh, hey, Brie, come over to my desk and I'll show you this software. I was like, look at the resource planning for the team or something. And I and the amount of documentation he had to do, especially dealing with Microsoft and Sony and stuff. And I, I looked at his job and I was like, that's the last job I ever want to do. It's not for me. So then I that's when I realized I wouldn't continue on that path. Yeah, I, 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 you know, speaking as a producer, <laughs> um, yes. I, I, I certainly get that. You know, I, I can remember, you know, when I, when I worked with with Crytek, that was, I guess, when we, when we finished that, that was about 140 person, about 120 people, and had, yeah. it had become that thing where more and more of it was paperwork and organizing meetings and stuff like that. And I think a lot of people who have that dream of being a producer, they don't get it. <laughs> they don't, they don't really <laughs> know what that job is. Right. <laughs> I'm curious, but but for 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 giggles, I'm curious because you know at one point you thought I I want to be a producer. What is yes. it you thought that job was then? I mean, you, you you were shown the light and 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 JF pulled you aside and said, you know, hey, this is what it really is. What what was it you thought it was before? Um, I think still I was more thinking about being going into the roles where I was useful, and mm. rather than what I wanted, and I was not looking at what my real talents could be or how they could be leveraged, but more just like what, like I wasn't thinking strategically long-term. I was thinking like, what's the next obvious step? Mm. It's like, I just kept taking these opportunities as they presented themselves and they were going in interesting places. So I just like was only ever thinking one step ahead. And I found like that was fine for me at that time. Um, but then when I saw what the next step would be, I realized I was stepping further and further away from what I was actually good at. Like I watched Jeff do his job and he was so good at it. And I realized like a lot of the things that made him good at it were things that were really hard for me, never were becoming easier and weren't like I started to have really strong feelings about where I wanted to see the industry go and where I wanted to see games go and where they weren't going. And I sort of became obsessed with wanting to make those changes in the industry and a production role is not the place to do that. You know, I, I would, I, I left AAA game development about the same time that you walked into AAA game development. Yeah. And so, so for me, it's actually very difficult to understand sometimes because that, that place that you were in at pandemic, that was mm -hmm. about when I left, right? Yeah. And teams were about that size. And when it got to that point, I can remember uh, thinking to myself, I, I don't want to work with a team this big. And and for me to look and, and hear somebody talk about a team that's, you know, 600, 700 people. And, you know, I don't even as I've been making games for 20 some odd years and I have no understanding of how to do that. I have no understanding of how that it's almost like an entirely different industry to me. Yes, it is. That's a different it's a different skill set. It's a different way of doing things. Um, I think that, like, when you have hundreds of people on a team and everyone's just, a, like, super specialist and the process is so heavy, you have to, like, your motivation has to be different than if you're on an indie team of five people. Yes. And I think there's a trade-off, you know, I mean... I don't get to stand up in front of people and say, I worked on Assassin's Creed 3. You get to, right? 
and and that's that's a huge thing. I mean, pretty much if you've played video games, you've played Assassin's Creed, right? I mean, everyone in the don't world. Don't but don't you get to stand up in front of people and say that you worked on Far Cry? Good. In 2004, <laughs> it's been a yeah. while, right? <laughs> well, soon it will have been a while since I worked on Assassin's Creed. Uh, but but I can tell you, you know, and and this is the journey that I've taken after that. I don't want to talk too much about myself, but the, <laughs> there is there is that journey of having been able to say, you know, hey, I worked on Far Cry, but that was a long time yeah. ago. And most of what I've worked on since then, most people I meet in the industry, they don't know. Yeah, you know, I worked on hidden object games for years and years, and you know, you say, oh, I, I made this this hidden object game, and and you see this look in their eye of like, oh, you're you're not working on anything important. Because they're, uh, uh, they're, but there is uh, there's, there's a serious elitism in the industry. Yeah, that, but fuck those guys. Seriously, oh, I, like, I'm still here. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> I didn't quit. No, but I just because I think that I mean the only thing I'm interested in is making games for new markets and people that are basically disrespected and looked down and talked down to by the industry, an industry that I think really has blinders on. So, like, I find hidden object games more interesting. Well, I mean, to be fair, I don't think the whole industry looks down on them. I mean, there's there's another whole, like... And oh, yeah, no, is, but I can, like, I... I, I we, like, we talked about I, this, actually, yeah, when we were yeah. in, in Tehran, that I really do think that the game industry is sort of separated out into these different camps. And, you know, one of the reasons that you and I have not crossed paths often is because yeah. we come from very different camps within the industry. And it's funny to me, young people talking about wanting to get in the industry, they don't know that the industry that, that you know, you've entered recently, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, and that I've been in for quite a while, and the industry that you spent most of your career in with you know games like Assassin's Creed are two wildly different industries and have very little to do with each other. Yes. But I want to get back to the questions. And I actually want to talk okay. about Child of Light. So when you, when you okay. started on Child of Light... You you say you took on the the lead coding role. Tell me about that change in your life. So now we're I mean, how big is this team? How big is this project? It's a brand new franchise, brand new everything. Tell me about yeah. this. When we started, there was me and two other programmers. Um, and eventually, the team grew to about forty people. But if I mean, Ubisoft, it was interesting because Ubisoft Montreal, the whole pipeline, the whole structure. Everything is designed to support large AAA games. Mm -hmm. And there's so many different middleware teams you have to work with and stuff like this. So if you watch the credits for Child of Light, a game that could have been made with five to ten people, the credits go on for ten minutes. <laughs> because hundreds of people touch that game. So, like, that experience taught me that, like, that studio is not the place to make small games like it was so inefficient and and um we like so much process heavy stuff but um like every role i've ever had i was just extremely intimidated and felt like i don't know how i got here and this is ridiculous and i'm an imposter and the hardest part of managing that team for me in the beginning was that I felt I knew nothing about engine programming and I had to manage engine programmers. And early on, one programmer joined my team who took a demotion to come onto the team and he was a lead engine programmer. And, and you now get to I had, manage him about how. Yes. Yeah. And I was like, uh, like, he's gonna know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I never know what I'm doing. And um, then. 
And so I was feeling like really shaky and really uncomfortable in that role. And then my first meeting with him and a couple other team members, the team had just grown a bit more. So I think I had four programmers at this time. Um, And we had a meeting where we were coming up with next steps or something. I can't remember exactly. And I had said in the meeting, like, well, I don't know, like you guys are the experts, like go and make me some time estimates and come back with them. And he was like, can I speak to you at the end of the meeting? And after the meeting, he was like, Brie, you can't say to your team that you don't know. Like, they're not going to respect you. And I was like, what? But I don't know. Like, they're the, And then so I, then I became really terrified of him because I was like, that's my whole management style. <laughs> so then, so then um, we ended up becoming very good friends, him and I, and I. But I still carried around with me, like, this idea that I needed to be a bit less transparent about not knowing things. And then I remember like two years later we were having coffee and it was funny because we were good friends at this point and we'd never talked about that. And so at some point, like two years, two years later we were having coffee and he was saying something about leadership and my management style. And I was like, what? But I was like, but you, you said to me that I need to whatever. And he was like, what? He was like, no, but then you told me that actually like, that that's your management style. And then he was like, and then I changed my whole management style. And now I realize I don't have to be so harsh with my teams and I don't have to pretend to know everything. And I, I let them be the experts. And I was like, Oh, so like, well, I think we met somewhere in the middle. It's, so it's that was my experience. What you remember from a conversation and what the other side of the person remembers yes. from the conversation. And yes. It's so rare. We revisit them again. And yeah. that's fascinating. But so that was just like, yeah, my experience from going from AI programming to like managing the whole team is just one of like feeling like a huge imposter and feeling very intimidated by my team members and not knowing how to handle that. All right. So now you're on what is for Ubisoft a relatively small project. Um, yes. And, and you're you're leading the code on it. How much, yeah. I, I, you know, people who are listening to this who want to know, people who are going into code, I always tell people, oh, you should go into code. And their answer is always, oh, I want to do design. In this position and in this role, how much did you get to influence or affect the design? How involved in that process did you get to be? In my team now? In in the team on uh, on, on Child of Light. Oh, Child of Light. Yeah. yeah, so since we were a small team and the, the vision of the creative director was that we run like an indie and everyone does a little bit of everything and we help out wherever we're needed. Um, so basically we all had a lot of input on the design. How did that, I mean, how did that work at Ubisoft in a place that had, had such training and such a back history of putting together huge projects where, you know, like you say, you got an Excel sheet and this is what you implement yeah. unless you had problems with it. How do you, how do you transition to that kind of project team in that kind of environment? Um, by, I think the most important thing is who you hire. So, um, when I made the programming team for Child of Light, it was the first time I got to build the programming team from scratch. Um, I didn't inherit the team. Mm-hmm. And I, I purposely, from, from watching how the culture had developed into this kind of extreme waterfall model mm-hmm. on Assassin and seeing how, like where that came from and how a lot of the programmers had only ever worked on Assassin, hadn't worked on others types of projects and stuff I decided for child of light just on a hunch to like build a team that was a balance of people from as many different kinds of backgrounds and experience as possible so I 
worked on small projects, people who've worked on big projects, people who worked at Ubisoft, people who worked from elsewhere, um, people who were brand new, people who had tons of experience, people who were very technical, people who were more social. Um, I just tried to balance every aspect as possible because I didn't know what we would be facing, and I felt like if we have all our bases covered, then we'll be good. And it worked. You didn't run into problems because I've I've personally run into problems pulling people out of other models where they they were just like yeah I, I don't want to talk about this just tell me what to do you didn't you didn't run into that sort of mindset very often. Um, I think that I think that where you can run into problems like that is when you get little factions forming up who think the same way. Mm. So if you have like a group of people on the project who want to don't agree with the direction and then they kind of feed each other mm. and rebel. But when every, when there's so much balance that everyone's coming from a different angle, then you don't get that mm. and it works out. Okay. Um, especially because, I mean, Child of Light was an easy case because everyone wanted to work on it. It was like, it was like the cool project in the studio, like doing something different. People coming from AAA were bored, really bored of having no agency. Yeah, I can People coming that. from other smaller projects were just exciting, excited to be on this like other new small project. And people coming from outside Ubisoft were excited to be at Ubisoft. So it was, it was like, I, I think that the challenge was very small. Nice. So I, I would love to talk more about Ubisoft. There's a, there's probably a whole interview just about Ubisoft, but I want to move on. Um, <laughs> yeah. So so Child of Light is done, and suddenly there's this huge transition in your life. Everything changes, and I, I don't want to give any of it away. You told me some of this story <laughs> when we were talking. Into I want I want I want you to tell everyone else some of this great story that I heard because it's it's fascinating career life change. So I'll, I'll let you go loose with that. Okay, well, I can't really talk about what I did after. I can't talk publicly about what I did after Child of Light. All right. Um, but I did cool stuff. And I also, um, at the end of Child of Light, I also had a, a life-threatening illness. So um, the result of that was that I realized, like, I don't want to continue on this path of, like, always thinking just one step ahead and taking opportunities. I have opinions and I see opportunities that the industry is not taking, I don't think, and I want to build towards those. Um, and then a year later, I quit. And I, I sort of quit, actually, in a temper tantrum with no plan. That's the best way to quit. I've never done anything like that before in my life. It was so satisfying. It is. It's liberating <laughs> as hell, isn't it? So amazing. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, what should I do now? I'll start a studio. I ended up getting the opportunity to go to a keynote in Australia where I had worked 10 years before. Um, and a friend messaged me and she's like, I heard you're coming to Australia. Come stay in my amazing cabin in the woods that I live in where we have snakes running through our house all the time, like in the jungle and so I went and did that keynote and I was very angry at the industry at that time. And I had to do an opening like inspirational keynote, which was a really interesting challenge. It was fun. And then, um, just, just I went out of curiosity, was this yes. that, uh, the thing in Melbourne, the, she makes games. Yes. Thing? 
No, it was uh, GCAP, Games Connect Asia Pacific 2015. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, and it was about the future of games. And um, so, but then I went to her house after the conference, and she was like, so I noticed you quit your job with no plan, and you're painting your house black. What are you doing? And because I was obsessed with this interior designer called Abigail Hearn, who's from the UK, who paints everything black. And so that's why I was doing that. But to my friend from afar, she saw that I quit my job and was painting my house black. And so she was like, what's up with Brie? That does look a bit dire from the outside. I will (laughs) agree. (laughs) The house looks amazing, though. It's like really moody and beautiful. Um, You have to put like seven lamps in each room to make it work. But anyway, so... (laughs) I think I have to paint it right now because I'm going to sell it this fall. Um, I just have this vision of this house that looks like one of those black box indoor theaters where everything is painted totally black. and I'm sure it, it looks look, better than that. It looks amazing. It's painted dark gray, actually, and each room is a slightly different kind of gray. And the way that the light plays off the, the slight color in the gray and the way that the sunlight going into the evening light. And I have those Philips Hue light bulbs that, I, I mimic the color of the sun in the morning and then like, so anyway, that it, it looks great. It sounds like but, it would look like an untextured unreal level is what it sounds like. <laughs> it's just super cozy. I have but, great faith. Um, it's wonderful. But, but anyway, so you painted yeah, your so house. Anyway, so black. yeah, so she was like, what's your plan? I was like, oh, well, you know, I'm, I'm making a studio in Montreal and she used to live in Montreal and she was like, you know, she, she doesn't like the cold weather just like me. And so she was like, well, what do you want? Like, what kind of, where do you, like, what is it that's your motivation? I talked to her all about, like, where I want to see games go and what I want to do. And then she went to work for the day and she came back and she said, I had a vision of your future. You're going to leave Montreal and you're going to travel for a year and make a series of short video games made with people who don't like video games and like do like one a month and and then just go from there and I was like are you nuts like I have responsibilities in Montreal I'm part of the community there I have like people that I mentor like I can't just pick up and leave and she was like Brie you don't have children you have no responsibilities you can pick up and leave you don't have to live in a place where there's winter seven months of the year and that could be the best advice I've ever heard anyone get. It was the it was life changing. Like and and um so well because I was like that's I wouldn't do that. And then I went to sleep and when I woke up in the morning I was like I'm totally doing that. It's well, it's such a hard. I have to give you total props because usually some people make changes like that all the time, but they usually make a change like that because they got fired and they found a job and it was the only job they could get and the new job that they're going to get is in Austin so they pack up all their crap and they move to Austin but very few people say I'm going to pack up all my crap and quit my job even though I don't have to and go somewhere that I don't have to go that decision very rarely takes place usually there's some outside agency pushing you into it yeah I think I I don't know why I did it it just seemed really exciting and I I knew that Montreal wouldn't be the place for me permanently. So I like I had already been there eight years. I felt like I had probably stayed there longer than I should have. Before Child of Light, I had wanted to leave Montreal 
very badly and I'd stayed because of the opportunity and I could see that if I didn't take this kick I would end up staying there and, and not wanting to be there for a long time like because mm -hmm. I just keep taking opportunities so um and and at the time I had been very touched by the conference I had just attended before she said this like the Games Connect Asia Pacific in Melbourne um, the community that I saw in Melbourne you know, when I had lived in Australia, I'd been, uh, when I'd started at Pandemic Australia, I was the only woman developer. And what I saw in Melbourne was like the, the women in games lunch was sold out because it, and some people couldn't come because there were so many and the community was extremely warm and supportive and very different than the corporate culture I knew from AAA. And so then I was like, I had no idea that different games communities around the world could have completely different cultures from each other. And at that point, I was like, well, that's it. I'm moving to Melbourne. But then I decided to travel and explore games communities all around the world and ended up not releasing a game a month because the first game I started, I started six. And then the first one looked so interesting that I wanted to develop it further. And that's the game that we're going to release really soon. And you, we're not, we're not going to talk about that. That's all still hush hush. So we're not going to discuss that. One. Okay, sure, yeah. <laughs> but but we can we can all assume it's awesome, right? It's I love it. It's experimental. We'll see what happens. I don't so, know if anyone else will like it, but I love it. Not not talking about the game itself. I want to I want to keep I want to keep looking at these sort of different aspects of how people make games. So you've, you've made games in, you know, 140 person team as a, a cog in an enormous 600 or more person team, gone back to a, you know, 40, 50 person team. Now you're making games almost alone. It's, it's you and a, and a couple other people, some contractors and whatnot. Mm -hmm. What's, what's this, what's it like coming all the way full circle back to a little tiny team like that? How does that feel? Um, well, it feels amazing because it's so much more efficient that I can work four hours a day and get way more done. Yeah, you don't have that three-hour meeting at the end of every day that you used to have. No, and I don't have to, like, you know, there's just, I don't have to, like, get the design on paper, get it approved, implement it, get it reviewed, make all these changes in the code because I didn't have you know, a model of this huge engine in my head and then like make those changes. And then by the time you make those changes and you sync to everyone else's changes, your changes are broken because it's changed so much. And then like, it takes you a week to check anything in because every time you sync, it breaks and you have to, like, you know, like you're, you're playing in this loop where you sync, it breaks, you fix it, but then you sync again and it's broken. And like, um, and, and then, and then it turns out that feature got cut after you just spent three weeks trying to work on it. You know, it's like now I just like check in with my team. Basically, I just like open up the game every morning, play it, get some ideas of like what seems the most interesting to work on that day. Like what seems like if I was releasing this game today, what would I feel ashamed about? And then that's what I work on. And then I send the build to the team and they all are like, Oh yeah, like I got my friend to play it and they really like this part. And then that way we can discover like surprises that we didn't plan for. Um, 
end up like, like, you know, if we get an idea for a feature, we can do it. We don't have to be like, oh yeah, but we can't have feature creep because it's going to like, like, it doesn't matter. Like we can try things. We can just, it's, it's very flexible and it's much more creative. And so it's much, much, much more interesting. For, for me working in, in, in indie game, the big change has been that the weight of the assets is taking off your back. You know, when you're working on the bigger, huge projects, there's always this, you know, okay, we've played it and this really isn't that fun and we really ought to redo it like this. But you know what? I've had an art team making animations for this for the last two months. And, yeah. and I have this, you know, this huge, and it, for me, it always felt like those assets were like in a big iron box that you carried around on your back and it just got heavier and heavier as you went through the cycle of development and yeah. you weren't you weren't allowed to change that but in in the games that we make now you know even yesterday i was playing one of the games that we're working on and yeah. i said you know hey these three things aren't cool let's go change them and i know that there's yeah. going to be art changes that come but it's a week's worth of art changes it's not a big yes. deal and you just yeah, it's do totally it. fine yeah. yeah and then and then i find that we end up saving in other areas like you know i made this i made this um feature the other day and then I went to put in some placeholder art and then I just like grabbed some placeholder stuff off the internet but then that didn't look good and then I couldn't see what I was working on with that so then I ended up just grabbing like a texture that my artist had made for the UI and then I put used that just so I could see what I was doing and then it actually looked amazing and that's just what we're going to use now yep yep been there (laughs) yeah so there's there's actually a funny question in indie game development that gets asked a lot that you never hear in AAA development is people will go is this play hold, placeholder, like right. you don't so you, sometimes you don't know you know you look at this yeah. stuff you're like is, is is that what we're going with we're going with that right oh no no yeah. that's placeholder okay I guess we could and sometimes you're like no nah, don't you don't even bother that's that's cool yeah it's totally that. fine yeah <laughs> so uh, I'm, I'm gonna pull I have to I have to start closing this down I got a couple more yep. questions um, okay. now everyone who knows me knows I'm a huge devotee of the virtual office right yes. and so you made this decision I'm gonna go around the world I'm gonna check out different game dev communities um, yes. and you're just gonna you know bring your laptop and work where you are yeah how's that been so in the beginning it was great people were like I don't know how you can do it but I didn't know anyone like I was coming, like, as you talked about, there's these different spheres of people in the games yep. industry. So I knew AAA people, but I was going to indie conferences. So I didn't, because the way I, the way I managed to travel was by speaking at conferences and stay in that area till I get another conference and just go like that. But so I didn't know anyone at first. So like, I would be like, just programming all the time. And I was getting, and I was just like, so um, enthralled by how much more work I could get done in two to four hours a day than I ever could in a 12 hour day on a big project. Mm. So I was like, this is easy. But then I started to know people and I started to see the same people at conferences that I already knew and wanted to hang out with them. And then, so for months I didn't work at all. And um, now that I've decided to settle somewhere, what I'm really happy about is having more of a routine. So I'm still not working full hours and I don't think I need to. Um, I get up in the morning and I can work in what is the most efficient for me. So I found that if I get up in the morning and I don't even get ready for the day, I just like work for three hours before I shower. I get a lot done. Yeah. Those are good hours. Yeah. Those are good hours. 
then I shower and I have some food or something and I change locations. I go to a coffee shop or the co-working space or something and I do another three hours and then that's my work day. And that's working very well. Yeah, it gets a little trickier when you start working virtually with, with slightly larger teams because you have to start figuring out, okay, somebody else is going to be working during these hours and I should you know, be right. available and whatnot. Yes. You, you have to start dealing with those kind of issues. But oh. even, even, even with small teams, you, you've got so much more flexibility to, to say, mm -hmm. you know, I work really well in the morning. And especially for, for stuff like I'm going to build some levels or I'm going to bang out yes. some code or I'm going to make some models where you just want to be left the hell alone and get some work done. Yeah. Those those morning hours or for me, actually, after my wife goes to bed, and the kids are in bed and it's like that, like 11 o'clock to two in the morning time. Yes. I get so much done. Those three hours, that's my work day. That awesome. I put all yeah. the, I got to do tasks part of my work day there. And that's when yeah. I get so much done. Yeah. Yeah, because when I was at Ubisoft, like I would spend the day connecting people who needed to be connected. And then if I had any individual contributions I needed to make, that got done after everyone went home. See, that's the part of AAA or, or working in an office development that I do not miss at all is yeah. everyone's ability to come into my room and bug me. <laughs> and, and the funniest thing is when I tell people about working in a virtual office, they always say like, yeah, but you don't have communication. I find that I have such better communication when I can just walk in and talk to somebody. And I always want to say like, I hate you. You're the guy who used to come in and mess with me when I was trying to get shit done. Mm -hmm. That thing that you think is so cool is the reason I don't want to be in an office anymore. Right. Well, so I've something I've found very interesting that's kind of tangentially related is I have now done work in as a full-time programmer, mm -hmm. as a manager, and now as creative director. And I also... I've studied a lot of psychology and player psychology and also using psychology to design AI systems. And one of the things that I studied was um, because I do a lot of group level AI. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I've studied was um, how behavior is dictated by personality and by situation or context. Mm. And um, when I was a programmer full time, I was very shy. And if someone came to my desk and interrupted me, I would kind of have to pull my head out of the code and look at them and be like, why are you interrupting me? And try to understand what they were saying while my head was in a completely different context. Yep. And I, I thought that, and I, and, and after a full day of programming, I never wanted to talk to people. Like I felt simultaneously exhausted and edgy. Mm -hmm. And I felt that for many years of my life. And I thought that's who I was. And then when I became a manager, I became much less shy. And I thought it was that I had learned to be less shy through all the management training and the practice and the meetings and stuff. And I became very, very organized and efficient. And my desk was tidy. And, you know, you could come and interrupt me at my desk and I could switch contacts super easily. And it was my job to be interrupted and it was my job to connect people. And, and, and it was fun. And then on Child of Light, when I started doing some programming again, before the team grew big enough that I stopped programming. I went right back to who I was before from seven years before. Like, yeah, it's all context, isn't it? It's, it's the, it's the nature of the work. Yeah. 
Like, and then, and then now that I'm doing creative work, I'm so disorganized. I forget to reply to people's emails all the time. I'm really hard to pin down. I miss deadlines. Like I, I'm just like, I'm having to learn how to be structured in that kind of work when I used to be like the most structured person. And so I think that the nature of the work defines a lot of this and the office environment is designed for factory work or designed for like, it's not designed for creative work. And we put these constraints on creative people and think it's a problem with them Mm. when they can't function in that context. And the thing that's nice about working remotely is that like my, the illustrator I'm working with super amazing and super talented. And because we're working this way, when he has inspiration, he's going to pound out tons of like weeks worth of work in a couple of days. And then I have all of this work of his and he can kind of step back a bit and relax and, and like he keeps working, but like I still have all this work to integrate. And then another set of inspiration hits him and he does it again. Um, and because we already had to build flexibility into how we're working. It gives him that flexibility to work that way. Yeah, I agree wholeheartedly for us. And, you know, I've, I've been running a virtual studio now for 12 years. And yeah. the, the biggest advantage that I have seen is exactly what you're talking about. It's different individuals are going to be more successful in different ways. And mm-hmm. when we when we shove them all in an office together and say, here's your cubicle and we're an office that has cubicles or we're an office with an open floor pan then you're just saying, all right, the people who do well in this environment are going to do well, and the people who don't, they're going to have to fight it every day. Yeah. And, and you know, what's funny for me uh, is is some of the people who work in our, we, you know, right now we've got about 30 people working in our studio, and they all have very different ways of working. We have some people that even though they have the freedom to not commute anywhere, even mm-hmm. though they have the freedom to work in their house, they choose mm-hmm. to commute to a space in town with a couple other people and they don't they're not even people who are on their project they just like being around other people and yeah. and they they miss that social aspect of being able to you know work with people they know and so they mm-hmm. go and they work in a in a in a collab workspace just mm-hmm. to be near each other and these are people yeah. that have no information to share with each other they're not like you know it's not improving their work in terms of communication at all right. but they just like being around each other and then there's yes. some people who live right next to other people who haven't seen them for months because yes. they just that's not how they work and and giving yeah. people the freedom to make that choice yes. that, for me that's the number one advantage of the whole thing yes and then we had talked when we were in Toronto about also you know another thing that people say about working remotely is like oh the communication isn't as good but i i think we both completely disagree because yeah. when the communication has to be more clear the communication is better and when you're all in the same room as each other, you can, you know, move forward faster in the wrong direction. But when you're all separate from each other and things need to be clearly communicated, it's, it's, I think you end up identifying bad directions sooner and not mm-hmm. taking those directions. So it might seem like the communication is less efficient, but it actually is more efficient in the long run because you're never, you're not like, going full steam ahead in the wrong direction for days before you realize. That's absolutely right. The other thing that I've, I've personally noticed, and I didn't notice this until I'd worked this way, 
I'm I'm a huge extrovert. You know, I, I'm I'm a loud guy. I talk a lot. I tend to dominate yeah. conversations. And when I'm put on a team that's all working in the same room, and we have these big three-hour-long meetings, uh, and you know, I've been through that experience. I tend to dominate those meetings, and so a lot of my <laughs> ideas get put in games. Not right. because my ideas are better, but because I'm louder and I'm, I'm a good debater yes. and I can make a good argument for them. Yes. When you move it into a virtual environment, there are people in in my team that are that. They barely can manage to stagger out a, a comprehensive sentence in terms of an argument in a in a group setting because they're just not right. that kind of person. Right. But put in an environment where everything's slowed down a little bit and they get a chance to in text say, you know, hey, I didn't like that or here's a screenshot of something I think might be better. Suddenly yeah. you're getting these ideas from people that uh, they just simply a, can't yes. put those ideas in because they don't have the personality to, to back it up in person. That's a really good point, yes. And, and for me, it's a very big point because I'm such – you've met me. I'm, I'm terribly <laughs> dominating in conversations. And so I, for me, I have to always remind myself in creative conversations to pull back and say, okay, there's this guy in the corner who hasn't said anything, and right. I know he's smart. How do I get yeah. those ideas out of him? But in a virtual environment where everyone's typing and responding to stuff, they tend to be a lot more vocal in those environments. Yes. Yeah. So I, I, we, we, this has gone way long, and I don't care yeah. because it's been incredibly <laughs> interesting, and I'm keeping all of it. I have one last <laughs> question that I want to ask. Uh, okay. One of the most common questions I get, uh, and I'm sure you get it too, is you know, young people or people who've got kids who are interested in games, you know, okay. I, they, and they say, I want to make games, or my son wants to make games, and what should they study? And my answer has always been, go to a good school, get a four-year degree in computer science, even if you want to be a designer. Um, Start making games as soon as humanly possible. That's my answer to the question. And I'm curious, do you have a better answer? I think that's my answer, too. I think that like studying computer science is useful. Um, I think that especially if, especially if you want to do the creative work and go into game design, like knowing what's possible with computers and being able to leverage. Like imagine if we focus more on AI in games, which I think is one thing we should be doing. If game designers knew more about what's possible, I think we could have not just fancy graphics or addictive gameplay loops, but also like really deeper characters and, and stories um, that it would are also, procedurally. Record, so, so I think a grounding in computer. Yes, yeah, sorry. Go on. I, I was going to say, for the record, it also means that uh, computer programmers can't walk all over designers when they tell you, "Oh, that can't be done" or "That's impossible." Uh, right. Having having a designer that has at least some clue can be like, "No, yes. no, no, actually, that might be done." You know. And it can be like you know things like things you learn in algorithm design and analysis, or things you learn. Um, like studying machine learning or something like this. This is stuff that we can leverage in games that game designers can use for inspiration. Um, and then, yes, like making games, like anyone can make a game. The tools are great. I wish I had those tools when I was young. I can only imagine what it would be like. So making games, studying computer science and making games. And then, yeah, so one question I get asked a lot for uh young people just starting out in the games industry, should they start in AAA or at an indie studio? And I think that there's no answer to that. It really depends on the individual and what they want to learn and what they want to work on, but also just like kind of take any opportunity you can. You know, I get that one a lot too. And one answer, you know, I don't have a great answer to that either. But one thing I do say then is a lot of people are like, 
or I think I just might start my own studio. And I always think, you know what, you know, put put in a, it, you know, at the very beginning of this interview, you were saying, you know, you the first three years that you spent at a game company, you learned more mm -hmm. than you did in four years of school. And, That's true. You know, I always think, and it was absolutely the same for me. You know, when I when I started in games, there was so much education that came in those first like two to four years of the yes. games industry. Why would you not get paid for that? You know, if you if you can find right. any way to have somebody pay you to get your your sort of master's degree on the streets of game development, right? And to gather mentors that you can yeah. have for the rest of your career. Yeah, there's, there's just so much there's so much value to that. So I always tell people, yes. you know, if you want to start a studio, that's great. Absolutely, you should do that. But go yes. let somebody pay you to teach you how to do that for a few years. I always tell them that. But I don't know. That's my I opinion. Th yeah, I think I think it just so much depends on the individual and and yeah. and, and how much risk they're willing to take on. Um, I would love to see, you know, like if it's possible for someone if they can afford to. And they wanted to start out right away with some hugely ambitious idea. They're probably going to fail, but they should still try, I think, if they're in the position to be able to. But I like, yeah, my first few years at Relic were absolutely invaluable. I learned more than I did during my degree. I met people that, you know, have always been there for me in my career. And I, I think it was a good way to go. Yeah, there, there's some, you know, I, I kind of see your point in, you know, if they really want to do it, I, you know, who am I to tell them that they can't if they've got, you know, parents that'll fund them or they're living at home or yeah. something like that. But, but, you know, I go to these indie conventions a lot and you, you all, I, I know you've met the team I'm about to tell you. And it's like four or five guys mm -hmm. that they've been working on this dream for like three or four years. And you look at it and you're like, dude, this is not going anywhere. You, you know, you, 20 seconds of looking at it, you know, it's not going anywhere, but they're good kids and they're working hard and you can tell you know what, given proper direction and some better education for a few years, these guys could have been powerhouses. But without that, they've been wasting so much time by themselves. And you know that when this finally fails, they're going to say, well, I tried games and it wasn't for me, and they're going to go do something else. And that's the Oof. saddest part of it for me, because those guys could have been great additions to the industry, but they're just going to they're kind of come out of it with such a bitter taste in their mouth that I always wonder maybe it would have been better for you to go, you know, ship something first. But I don't know, that's my that's right. my take on it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I mean, that's a really good point. And on that, um, I'm actually going to this. That's all the time we got. I, I swear I was like, yes. we're, I'm trying to do 30 <laughs> to 45 minute interviews. This is like an hour and 15 minutes, uh, but it's but it's a damn good hour and 15 minutes. And I'm keeping all of it. Uh, this has been right. incredible, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me. Um, this has just been yeah, wonderful. Thank you. Yes, it has been. Thank you very much. That's it for the show today. I hope you enjoyed that half as much as I did. I know it was a long show, but there was just so much good stuff there that I didn't want to cut any of it, so I left it all in. For those of you who made it to the end, well done. If you want to know more about Brie Code and her projects, currently she is putting together her True Love Media projects, as she talked about. If you want more information about that, um, there's information in the little information. There's links. Go click on the links wherever you found this podcast. If you want more information about this podcast, there's information there, too. Let us know what you think. Come check us out on our Discord channel. And as I tell you every single time, Tell your friends about us. Put us on your Facebooks. Put us on your Twitters. Put us on your Grinders. Wherever it is you put that information, let people know. We'll see you on the next episode.